Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affects all of us in and out of the ACB community. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's another Sunday, and this is another Sunday edition. I'm your host, Anthony Corona, and I have assembled a fine panel of experts to have a discussion surrounding the Supreme Court, the life and work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and where we may be going with this next nominee. So let's dive right in. I am very happy to welcome Steve Mendelson. Steve, say hi. Tell us a little about yourself. Hi, thank you, Anthony. Thank you very much for the opportunity of being here, and greetings, everyone. Uh, I am an attorney of 50 years standing who has specialized in disability rights work in a variety of contexts, including the judicial, the legislative, uh, and the regulatory, uh, mostly in a public policy context. But uh, right now I'm here, I guess, mainly because I'm the president of AVIA, the American Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys, which is ACB's uh, uh, legal uh, lawyer special interest group. And uh, what we basically do is two things. Number one, we try to provide uh, a degree of mutual support to lawyers with visual impairments uh, who are facing issues in uh, getting into the profession or in their work. Uh, And secondly, we try to put on a program of interest to the general ACB membership at the convention uh, most years. Uh, Some of you who were there in St. Louis may well remember our reenactment of the Dred Scott trial. Uh, And some of you may remember the two uh, uh, hypothetical cases that we put on as scenarios where ACB members acted as as jurors. Uh, And it was very exciting for us to do that and very informative. And we hope that if we get back together in Phoenix next summer or somewhere else the year after, that we can do that again. Thank you very much. I'm also joined by Chris Prentice. Chris, good morning or afternoon, depending on where you are. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, Anthony, and thank you for having me uh, on, on your program today. Um, I am uh, Chris Prentice. I'm, I've been a practicing attorney for 33 years. I've spent time in uh, municipal government, county government, uh, currently work in state government as an assistant general counsel with the Texas Workforce Commission that uh, houses the uh, rehabilitation program. Uh, additionally, I, I spent uh, about 16 years in private practice doing a variety of uh, cases, including some disability work. Uh, I also spent uh, about a year and a half as an advocate uh, with uh, the protection and advocacy system here in Texas. And I'm also the uh, past president and first vice president of uh, Avia and work closely with Steve uh, in our uh, organization. Thank you so much. And I have a special guest introduction from the great Scott Marshall, who's been on our show a few times, and he may pop in with some questions or commentary later on. But I'm very, very pleased to introduce Professor Kim Ford Mesrui. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Anthony, and thank you for including me in this important discussion. 
Uh, I am in my 25th year on the law faculty at the University of Virginia, uh, where I teach constitutional law, federal employment discrimination law, and uh, racial justice and law. My scholarship uh, tends to focus on constitutional equality, especially with respect to race, sexual orientation, and sex. Uh, and I also run a program called the Center for the Study of Race and Law. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I would like to dive right into the conversation. So I think the first area that we should touch on is the history of appointments to the court and what we're looking at, right? What we're looking at now based upon, a, you know, based looking at it in a historical context. Uh, professor, if you don't mind, would you kind of give us a rundown of what the court looks like and what the process of nomination is going to look like right now? And then the and we'll go into some historical context. Uh, sure. So as most of you know, the power to appoint is uh, given to the president, but it requires the consent of the Senate. And uh, used to not be so controversial, but over the past few decades, uh, it has gotten more controversial. Of course, this one is especially controversial for a variety of reasons. Uh, so the president nominates and then the Senate has to um, affirm. Uh, so you need at least 50 votes in the Senate uh, because in that case, uh, the vice president could break the tie. Uh, there are already 53 Republican senators, so uh, there shouldn't be any difficulty. It used to be the case that for Supreme Court justices, you had to get 60 votes in the Senate by Senate rules, but um, they did away with that. So they actually only need a, a simple majority. So um, they'll hold some hearings uh, over the next few weeks. And uh, apparently the goal is to hold a vote uh, just before the election. And we have currently a court of nine justices, but when the constitution was framed, it was not stated how many justices were to be on the court. And that number has fluctuated back and forth early in our government, but for the last 140 some odd years, it's been nine. Could uh, one of you guys speak a little bit about, okay, audio glitch, so sorry for that. Could one of you speak a little bit about why we have nine justices now and is, is there potential for the court to change numbers? Well, uh, I might uh, comment on that, uh, Steve here. Uh, we've had, as you say, nine justices for well over a century, and there was never anything sacrosanct in that number, except that it became established as a, as a norm and as an important historical norm because anybody who proposed to change it had a reason for changing it, which would have been destabilizing. Uh, and so consequently, it came as a de facto matter that everyone agreed that it should remain nine. There have been serious attempts to alter that, most notably in the 1930s when President Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, uh, frustrated by the tendency of the Supreme Court to strike down New Deal legislation at that time, proposed what came to be called a court, court packing, wherein he proposed to appoint one new, one additional justice for every current justice over 70. There were six justices at that time over 70. He claimed the workload was too much for them. Uh, and therefore, additional justices should be appointed. Uh, it never happened for a variety of reasons. First of all, again, because it was a step too far. 
even for many of the president's supporters, and also because the Supreme Court began suddenly to uphold New Deal legislation a little bit more often and progressively more frequently. Now there is talk, of course, uh, that uh, if this uh, nomination is confirmed uh, and if the Democrats uh, take control of Congress, that they might uh, want to consider, uh, as they have every right to do by statute, because as as uh, has been just said, there's nothing in the Constitution regarding the number of cases and uh, the number of justices on the Supreme Court. They may decide to want to try to change it, and that would be, uh, uh, of course, yet another quite, quite political battle. There are many other things they could do to change the role of the court as well by statute, things that would not necessarily raise constitutional issues. And uh, depending on what happens, we'll just have to see what happens. Who actually has the power to to make that move to potentially add justices? And what would the process be to do so? It would be done by, leg- by legislation. It could be done essentially in the way that other laws or, or statutes are passed. So depending on the rules of the, of the Senate at that time would require either a majority, if, if the Senate rules allowed such legislation to be passed by a majority, or if the rules required a supermajority, 60, let's say, uh, then it would have to uh, pass that threshold. It would have to pass the House. And it would then have to uh, uh, either be, be signed by the president or in the event of a presidential veto, uh, to have that veto overridden by Congress. Okay. And um, in the early days of the court, we had six, a Supreme Justice and then five. Uh, when was the first change? Oh, good question. Yeah, I don't know uh, the answer to that either, but... Um, I think it was in the eight. I believe it was in the 1830s. I was this before this call. I did a quick view on the Senate's uh, website, and it had a list of uh, the justices, the Supreme Court justices, and when and how many there were. And and it, uh, from what I could tell, and I obviously didn't do any in-depth research either on that question, but it appears that they started adding them in the around the 1830s, 1840s. Um, and it, they didn't add all three at once. It was like they added one, and then a few years later they added a second, and then they added the third. And I, I think that's what I saw. Is between eighteen, between eighteen thirty and and eighteen sixty four, because I think maybe Lincoln was the one that did the ninth one. But I'm not positive about that. But it was in that, it's in that time frame. So it's it's been at nine for, uh, you know, one hundred fifty years or so. Yeah, and I wanted and, to add that there's been, this would not be the first time there's been politicization. It was already mentioned about the FDR's court packing plan. Uh, but also very early on in, I think it was roughly 1800, uh, when the, um, the Federalists were in power and President John Adams, and uh, they were roundly defeated in the election uh, and the um, Democratic Republicans took over both Congress and the White House with Thomas Jefferson becoming president. And in the window between um, the Adams administration being voted out, but before they had to give up power, uh, the Adams administration with the Federalists in Congress uh, expanded the number of federal judges in the country dramatically, and then proceeded to um, appoint many new judges of their party uh, up until midnight of the night uh, before Jefferson was to become president. They referred to it as the midnight judges. 
And then the Democratic Republicans were so uh, you know, angry when they took over Congress, they passed legislation that actually suspended the operations of the Supreme Court for an entire year. Uh, so anyway, this isn't, this isn't the first time uh, that there's been political wranglings over the courts. And those... What's also worth noting is that those appointments gave rise to what many people consider to be the most important constitutional case in Supreme Court history, Marbury versus Madison, the case in which the Supreme Court established its authority to review the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of congressional enactments. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and and, the, and right in the same time frame, uh, there was a justice that was appointed a recess appointment uh, named Rutledge, and he was when he when recess came back. Uh, he was not confirmed, so that that was kind of I think in that same same time frame. So there were you know uh, there've been there's been political infighting in Washington since there's been Washington. So mm-hmm. <laughs> new, it just it kind of goes in phases, and 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 then for a while they'll get along, and then they decide they're going to fight on what day it is and and what what time the clock says. <laughs> And the Supreme Court justices are appointed for life or until they retire. That, um, that's been talked about a lot lately, too. Is, is it a likelihood or a possibility that the, the term could change? It would require a constitutional amendment, which it's hard to imagine um, two-thirds of Congress uh, and then three-quarters of the states agreeing to anything, much less something uh that politically sensitive uh there have been proposals by some scholars to uh have kind of term limits on justices one for example would basically result in every two justices i think retiring every or maybe one justice every four years or something like that and it would make it so each presidency would have the same number of justices to appoint um, but again, that would require a constitutional amendment. Well, politically, probably the only way it could happen would be if the Supreme Court were equally divided, so neither side would see such a move as giving advantage to the other. Well, and, and, and the other thing, the other thing to think about is if if they tried to do the age limit thing on the Supreme Court, the Congress would have to be willing to do the age limit on themselves, and you know we've seen we've seen them roll in congressmen that were in their nineties that refused to, to walk away. So if they said, well, you can't serve on the Supreme court once you're over 80, then you're going to have, they'd have to do some cleaning out of the, the house, the Senate too, because if they made it applicable to the court and not applicable to themselves, uh, I don't think there's any way in the world that such a constitutional amendment would have any way of passing. It would have to, it would have to be an across the board age limit. And of course, then you get, AARP and some of the other senior organizations saying, wait a minute, you know, if their mind is so good, let them, let them do their job. So I, I, I agree with the other panelists. I don't, I don't really see that happening, but there has been. If they did it, they'd probably do it by term limits, not by age limits. That's the greater likelihood that would solve that problem at least. But historically, of course, for better or for worse, for good and for ill, some of the most consequential Supreme court decisions of all time have been written by justices over 80. Well, can you give us an example or two of that? Well, the worst decision of all time, the Dred Scott decision uh, by Roger by Roger uh, B. Tony, uh, who was over 80. Uh, a number of Oliver Wendell Holmes 
uh, heroic civil liberty decisions in the 20s were written after he turned 80. And of course, uh, our, our, our late and, and, and greatly lamented and much beloved Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg issued many of her most important and I think enduring dissents after the age of 80. And we're going to get into uh, RBG in a little while because she's been, as I put in the promo, pretty much a rock star and uh, took some choice, made some choices that other justices have not made, especially in her dissents. Um, we're going to move into a little bit of controversy, a little bit of a controversial topic now. So President Trump announced his nominee last night. And just about four years ago, we were in the same situation and there was a lot of discussion, a lot of debate back and forth, whether it was appropriate for a president in an election cycle to nominate. And now we seem to be in the same place. So, Professor, if you would, what historically has been um, the norm for this situation and you know, why has it changed in the last 20 years? Uh, my understanding, but I haven't studied it in depth, is that uh, typically presidents have been able to um, nominate people throughout their, their presidency. So uh, it's really a change that the Republicans made up uh, four years ago to say that uh, somehow it has to wait until the next president if it's in the year of an election. So throughout history, that really wasn't a precedent that had been set. This is something that the narrative changed to fit the needs of the current, of the Senate and uh, the political climate four years ago, correct? Right. I don't think, I don't think that's accurate. Okay. I what what is accurate? It's happened twenty nine times in the past, and when the when the president and the controlling party and the Senate have been of the same uh, same party, then then they go through. When they haven't been, it hasn't gone through, and so uh, that's that was the whole deal. In addition to that, um, uh, what came into play was the fact that Obama was a lame duck. He was not going to be able to run for re-election again. So uh, he was he was going to be leaving office no matter what. And so the the Senate made the decision that he's he's leaving office and we're we're not going to uh, hold the hearings. Um, and the difference is this time the uh, Trump and the the Republicans control control the Senate. So it is, it's not the same. And to characterize it as the same is disingenuous because it is a different situation. And the president uh, is, he's available for another term. He's up for reelection. He's, he's, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with that. He may be in office for another four years. He may be in office till January 20th of 21. We don't know, but uh, he's entitled to make appointments under the constitution until, until he leaves office. And, uh, just like he's able to uh, uh, grant pardons till the day he leaves office, and we've uh, we've seen presidents do that as well. So, uh, I'm sorry, Chris, you're saying there have been 29. Pardon. You're saying there have been 29 times when a sitting president was uh, precluded from uh, 
having hearings held on their nomination to the Supreme Court because no, I'm saying there's been 29 times that uh, justices have been appointed in an election year uh, for president. Right. No, I agree with that. I said it was the, the novelty is saying that they can't appoint someone because it's no, 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 they can always appoint. But if, if the if the Senate does, is of an of the other party, you know, I can guarantee if the shoes were on the other foot, the exact same thing would happen. The Democrats would do the exact same thing that the Republicans are doing. And and to to try to throw the the hypocrisy uh, angle at this is is nonsense. And the way that the and on top of that, the way the Democrats treated uh, uh, Kavanaugh when he was appointed two years ago, uh, they deserve all they get. So uh, this this is this is where it goes. If they'd have been gentlemen and ladies and, and not attack people with stuff that was made up from high school, uh, we probably wouldn't be in the same situation that we are. And, and they're not acting like adults, they're acting like paper tantrums, and I think that's inappropriate. I'm sorry, hypocrisy is when you don't apply a principle when it benefits yourself, but uh, you do apply it uh, when it hurts somebody else. The, the Republicans said, uh, they didn't say when the same parties are in power, which wouldn't make sense anyway. They said the people should mm -hmm. decide during an election year uh, which uh, party should get to appoint the next uh, Supreme Court justice. Uh, Lindsey Graham repeatedly said that, Mitch McConnell, et cetera. That principle they are not applying this time. So they're being hypocritical. Okay. And uh, I agree. But did you also hear Lindsey Graham say that after? The way that Kavanaugh was treated in 2018, that all bets are off. And uh, uh, so the, the Democrats brought this on themselves. They could have been uh, professionally appropriate when they dealt with uh, the appointment of Kavanaugh. I mean, when when, Elena, when Elena Kagan was was nominated, she passed easily. When Sotomayor was uh, appointed, she passed easily. Uh, it's it's the Democrats that attack that attack. Well in the last 20 years you know same thing with clarence thomas i mean it's when it's been when it's been a a republican that's appointed a justice that's when you have the ugliest fights not when democrats to be fair the two men that you mentioned had questionable pasts and had things in their past that that allowed for debate um so I don't think that it's characteristically fair to say that it's a Republican versus Democrat appointment thing. You know, Kagan didn't have questionable uh, areas of her past. So there wasn't much room for debate. Kavanaugh did not have anything questionable in his past. That stuff was made up. May I, may I say something? I think that uh, obviously this particular argument can't be resolved here. What's important is that by the way we're arguing, what we're arguing, we're reflecting the real point, which is that uh, the actual history, the facts, as Chris points out, uh, are undoubtedly correct. The question is, are they the relevant facts? By which I mean, are they, are they the politically relevant facts or are they the emotionally relevant facts? And that it remains to be determined. Uh, if, uh, if you are a Democrat, uh, as I suspect the majority of our listeners probably are, but I can't be sure, but if you are a Democrat, then you do uh, f uh, find uh, hypocrisy. You would note, for example, in respect to the question of what justice got opposed, that uh, neither Justice Kagan nor Justice Sotomayor were considered to be particularly far left. Uh, they were not nearly so ideological 
uh, so also with Merrick Garland, uh, the uh, conservative uh, appointments have been specifically and explicitly made uh, based on based on their ideology, which was a more a more purist ideology. So that would explain part of the controversy. But the real point again is not uh, the way twenty nine or seventeen or fifteen or when Lindsey Graham made his absolutist statements and when he didn't and what made them no longer applicable. The real issue is ultimately a political issue, and it's going to be the, the voters who decide, not necessarily the outcome of this nomination, but it all factors into the outcome of the election, and that makes it more complex and, frankly, more volatile. Well, and here's, here's the other issue that comes up. When, when justices are appointed, presidents may assume that they're going to be someone that's going to be favorable to their position every time. Obviously, uh, Justice John Roberts has not been exactly what, what uh, conservatives thought he would be. Uh, same thing with Justice Souter. They thought he was going to be a, a conservative justice. Slam dunk, yeah. And he tends, to sit, he tends to sit more to the left side of the table than the right side. So, you know, we, we appoint these people for life. You don't know what you're getting. You think you know what you're getting when you when you vet them, you spend hours and hours of talking with them. You read over all their opinions, and then once they once they sit on the court, then things things often change. I mean, they thought uh, they thought Berger was going to be more conservative than he was. They thought, uh, you know, there there have been numerous ones when the the president's like, now why not appoint him after after it's happened? And so, um, you know, I think we need to be fair. You, you judge. You judge the justices by by the work that they do once they're there, um, and and granted, this this is one of those times. It's it's toward it, obviously the election is just weeks away, and uh, it looks like that the the confirmation hearings will begin on October twelfth, and and the the vote will be taken a few weeks after that, um, and apparently you know unless something comes up, the Republicans have have the majority and we'll be able to get her confirmed. But I think that the Democrats on, uh, on the committee, as well as the ones in, in the full Senate need to be careful. I mean, this is a, this is a woman that's, that's a mother that has school age children. We've never had a mother with school age children sitting on the court before, and they need to be careful or they will alienate a lot of voters just because of the way they treat this woman. And I understand it's important because of the, the balance of the court, but, we don't know that the balance of the court is the balance of the court because we don't know because they consider each case as they come up. Well, we have to uh, assume, though, that we can take people at their word to a certain degree. And again, this is the distinction between the justices who have been nominated by a conservative Republican president and the justices over the last 30 years who have been nominated by a Democratic president. So you look at their writings, both their academic writings uh, and their judicial writings in terms of their lower court opinions you find a much higher degree of predictability and a much higher degree of, shall we say, ideological reliability on the part of the conservative nominees that you do, or the Republican nominees than you do on the part of the Democratic nominees. And of course, we don't know what new life experience or what new and unforeseen issues will create new cleavages uh, and new uh, points of view on the part of the Supreme Court justice, any Supreme Court justice. But it's reasonable to assume that people are picked for reasons and that when people who have a long record of commitment to certain values, and they are values, they are principles, whether I agree with them or not, they're entitled to as much respect. This is right, and no one should ever, I think, uh, attack a nominee for the Supreme Court on personal grounds. Personal issues uh, have nothing to do with it whatsoever. Uh, but I think that you can reasonably predict that people will continue to believe, and as judges, 
even though they act with integrity, will inevitably, because they're human, uh, interpose their uh, views of the world and their views of various legal and constitutional issues into their decisions. And that leads me to the next uh, level of conversation. There are three hot button issues that are going to be brought to the court soon uh, or potentially brought to the court soon. The first I want to hit on is healthcare. Uh, there's a um, there's a hearing um, for Obamacare, uh, the Affordable Care Act that's coming up. What does the court look like on that issue? Now here there's an interesting here's an interesting complexity. Uh, everybody uh, believes that one way or the other, the uh, filling of the vacancy and the appointment of a nine justice of a nine justice will result in, in, a, in a definitive decision, albeit potentially a five to four decision. Many people are predicting that it would be a decision uh, in favor of of, of uh, declaring the, the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Other people say it would be a narrower decision. Be that as it may, what's interesting here is that if you have an eight judge court. Uh, then the context in which the lower court decision is reviewed becomes very different. Because if you have uh, an eight-judge court that divides 4-4, then all that happens is that the lower court decision is affirmed. Uh, that is, so the case goes the way the last court who considered it said it should go, but the decision has no precedent value. Uh, that being the case, we have to look at the lower court decision in the Affordable Care Act case. And if I understand it correctly, Professor Ford, please, uh, Professor uh, Masri, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my recollection that the current lower court decision that's being appealed goes in favor of the of the plaintiffs, the people who want to declare the act unconstitutional. So an equally divided court, if we ended up having that, would in effect affirm that decision, albeit without presidential value. That's right, and you would have a really strange result that uh, the lower court opinion, which would invalidating Obamacare, would um, that holding would only apply in. I think it's the Fifth Circuit, which I think it's Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. So you'd have three states where it's invalid, and it would then still still be valid in the rest of the country, which just makes it all the more complicated. And if the if the decision is held up, what is the next step? You Within mean if Obamacare? You mean if Obamacare is declared unconstitutional? Yes. Do the rest of the states then have to bring cases as well? Or would that change the playing field for changing the, changing the state of the system in the states that have, are not plaintiffs yeah. in, this, in this decision? If, there, if, there, if there's a five to four decision against constitutionality, then the Affordable Care Act goes away. It's simply that. And we, we revert to the status quo ante, so to speak. Although, of course, there have been other changes in law which would uh, modify that status quo somewhat. But basically, the Affordable Care Act would go away. And from the standpoint of the people who oppose the act, they obviously think that's a good thing because they feel it imposes a number of mandates that they don't like from the standpoint of the people who have their uh, right to coverage, notwithstanding pre-existing conditions protected, it would be a disaster. So again, ultimately, the answer would be political. But strictly speaking, technically, uh, the situation would revert to the status quo before the Affordable Care Act was passed. There's a lot of talk right now that there could be a decision that would have to be made in the election. We faced that with Florida quite a number of years ago, Borg, um, Gore. And um, what would that look like now if we have a very close election and it goes 
to infighting of who actually won. What is the process to bring it to the court to make that decision? Well, it could go it could go similar to the way Bush v. Gore did in 2000, and it would get to the Supreme Court. And if you've got a four four, if you've got a four four decision, that could create a constitutional crisis. And I think that makes it all that much more important for Trump to make an appointment so we have a full court, so a decision can be made. And I, the court is still going to be bound to follow what the law says, regardless of what they, uh, you know, if. if if the court is, has got a majority of strict constructionist uh, judges on there, they're going to follow the law. They're not going to create law. And that's that's all the more reason to have a full court and not to have a full four decision. Because if if that if we end up with that, it could conceivably mean that uh, the Speaker of the House becomes the president. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's where that goes. So <clears throat> well, well, let's, let's, let's remember that in the year 2000, the Supreme Court, in deciding Bush v. Gore, well knew it was creating law. It had to. It felt that it was filling a vacuum. Uh, and it's not up to me or, or anyone to second-guess them now. They acted in good faith. But they had no doubt in their mind that they were necessarily creating new law because they were dealing with an unprecedented situation. And the question was how a variety of other laws that were never designed for the situation would or would not apply. The Supreme Court is always making new law. When people come before the Senate in their confirmation uh, hearings, and say, oh, they're just going to apply the law. They're not going to make. They're not going to make new law. It's basically a silly statement. Cases wouldn't get to the Supreme Court if the law were clear, or wouldn't get to the Supreme Court if there weren't some strong sector in society who wanted something reviewed or changed. So, by definition, the Supreme Court is making law, even if it upholds an existing law against the challenge. It's making law by reaffirming and strengthening that prior law. So, saying the Supreme Court is not making law is is a little bit silly. They're always making law by definition, whatever they do. Well. And about Bush versus Gore, that's even different from most cases. I mean, in most cases, I agree that one could construe what the court does as a as a kind of lawmaking. But uh, it often is that they are following a judicial philosophy that tends to have a certain predictability in results. But but you could say they're still applying some sort of methodology that they think is the right way to interpret the Constitution. Bush versus Gore, I think, illustrates that. Uh, the courts followed their political preferences, not even their judicial philosophies. If you would have, the fact uh, though that they knew they were making law is ev- evidenced most strongly by the fact that the decision says that it cannot be used as precedent. Yeah, that's, so, that's, I mean, that's it, unheard of in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a clear decision. Yeah, and I'm just saying this—it's an example of where they were really acting lawlessly. They were not applying principles. If you would have. Uh, hidden who the parties were and just said, here are the issues, predict the way they would come out. You would not predict that the, the justices that decided to intervene into Florida's prerogative over its elections uh, would have done that. They did it because it was uh, George Bush that they were siding with. Well, let's look at what could happen this year. And in fact, uh, 2000 is not a good example because the issues there are focused on one state and the case only got to the Supreme Court uh, originally, by way of review of what the Florida state, state, state Supreme Court had done. Uh, right. And now what, what would happen is you would have uh, lawsuits brought in many states uh, contesting either some or all mail-in ballots, contesting when they were received, contesting uh, who knows what. And the, the, the losing side would probably be the instigator of litigation in most states. There's no obvious way those cases could be consolidated because they all would involve different facts. There's no way you could lump them all together. 
And so the courts, and some would be brought in state courts, some would be brought in federal courts, and you would have uh, full employment for lawyers. That's for sure. I may come out of retirement. Uh, you'd have full employment for lawyers, and it would be a tremendous uh, uh, battle royal. Each of these cases would go up, and some might well get to the Supreme Court based on a couple of procedures for expedited review that are available. Others might not. But the issue you have is they all run into a very important deadline, which is the deadline for states to to uh, nominate and select their electors, that is, the actual people who will vote in the Electoral College. Uh, and as we've all been hearing lately, that deadline is in early December, probably December 8th or December 12th, depending who you listen to. So the question is, uh, if the lawsuits were still ongoing, would enough states be able to identify their electors uh, to make the Electoral College meaningful? And if not, what would happen then? Uh, or if there were disputed electors, such that uh, in one state, let's say the voters had chosen one candidate, but the legislature then had somehow acted to to supersede that and choose other electors. What would happen then? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, if you look at the, con- at the Constitution, the, the uh, uh, 12th Amendment, uh, pretty clearly, if the issue were simply who had won, uh, it would go to the Congress. The House of Representatives would vote on the president from among the top two uh, uh, electoral vote getters, and the Senate would vote for the vice president. The way the House would vote is not uh, the way you normally see it, you know, 250 yes, 175 no's. The House would vote by state. Now, so the delegation from the state would caucus, and they would have a vote, and they get one vote based on the outcome of their caucus. So if you do that currently, if you look at the way the House is constituted, Republicans have a majority of the delegations in about, I think, 27 or 28 states. I forget the exact number. So if it went to the House, uh, the Republicans would probably act to uh, to choose President Trump. And if it then went to the Senate, the Republicans, again, could choose uh, to uh, uh, reconfirm Vice President Pence. But here's the other trick. What happens if both houses go heavily Democratic in November, such that in late December and early January, until the legal uh, demise of the current Congress on January 3rd, if before January 3rd, uh, the Congress decided to take those steps because there was no clear electoral college outcome, uh, what would happen then? And the answer is, I don't know, and nobody knows. Equally, what would happen if uh, there was uh, successful pressure to postpone that decision until after January 3rd, by which time the new Congress would be in office? And the answer is, I don't know, and no one knows. So there's been a lot of discussion about electors going opposite of what the state actually, you know, what the ballots show in the state. Is there any precedent of that having been done in the past? Uh, electors cannot. There's, a, there's a, uh, again, Professor Mazzurri, perhaps you can remind me uh, of, the, of the name of the case, but there is a clear Supreme Court precedent, if I recall correctly, uh, that electors cannot... Uh, uh, cannot uh, change their vote after they get chosen based on who they promise to vote for. Now, a separate issue is this, whether or not the legislature of a state would have the power to override the electors chosen by the people and to substitute for them electors chosen by itself. Uh, that possibly has been issued. And that depends on the law of each state. For example, most states now have laws which require that the electors vote for the people uh, who, who they were chosen to, to, to vote for, who they said they were going to vote for when they, when, uh, when they were chosen. Uh, so for a state to go against that, they, the state itself would have to change its own law. Now, the states which have uh, uh, parties where the legislature and the governor of the, are the same party, that might be easy. 
in states which have uh, uh, opposite parties in control of the two different branches, that would be harder. Uh, and again, it varies a lot by state by state in terms of uh, how that would work out. Uh, so it, it could happen. It could happen in a couple of states. And the Constitution doesn't expressly for, forbid it. Uh, in fact, the Constitution basically says the legislature uh, shall, shall determine the electors. And the way legislatures have done that is by granting that right to the voters. Uh, but I suppose in a state where the legislature and the governor were in agreement that that should be changed, they could take it away. Again, we just don't know. Hmm. So I'm going to shift again. Um, a lot of talk out there is saying that this is the absolute right time for the court to relook at Roe versus Wade. What timeline do you think, if um, this nominee goes through, what timeline do you think where we would start seeing challenges come up through the court system for them to look at? Try 10 minutes after the confirmation. Uh, it's obviously an area of great ferment. A number of states every year pass legislation restrict, restricting restricting uh, the right of abortion. Now, it's interesting to note in this regard, but we have a little background. A lot of the conservatives who are disappointed with Just, Justice Roberts are disappointed with him, among other reasons, because of his recent decision in the Louisiana abortion case, which involved the question of uh, whether or not the state could require doctors who provide abortions to have hospital affiliations, uh-huh. uh, which, of course, uh, uh, and Justice Roberts voted to affirm a decision of two years earlier in which the Supreme Court had held that that requirement was an undue burden uh, upon uh, upon the constitutional right of abortion. Now, the people who opposed Justice Roberts, who were angry or disappointed by Justice Roberts on that basis, um, I hope would take into account that he was acting based on precedent. He is a strong believer in the rule of precedent. Uh, and that so long as that was the prior decision, he felt that until, they, until unless there was a majority uh, uh, eager to overturn it, that he had no alternative uh, uh, but to abide by the president of the court, whether he personally believed in it or not. In my mind, that's what a conservative is. Somebody who says it is less important what the decision is, who it pleases or who it displeases, than what is the methodology used to reach the decision. And that's what we've, we've lost. There was a time... It was a time when that was what mattered. Now, now it doesn't matter anymore, whichever side you're on. It's not a Republican thing. It's not a Democratic thing. Uh, but all, all that matters now and the legal process, the niceties of the legal process, and even in many cases, the potential of the legal process to help iron out society's problems are, are lost in this political fabric of, of, of polarization. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. It's difficult, really, to predict uh, what the outcome would be because of the extent to which some justices do give a lot of weight to precedent. I mean, the uh, Republican presidents have been appointing uh, justices to overturn Roe versus Wade for decades, and uh, it should have been overturned a long time ago if if it weren't for adherence to precedent. Justice Kennedy probably would have voted against a right to abortion. Same with Justice O'Connor, same with Chief Justice Roberts, but they all have ended up um, upholding it. Uh, because of deference to precedent. I think under the new court, the middle vote would likely be Justice Kavanaugh. And he's also, you know, he's not a, he's not an originalist like uh, Gorsuch and um, uh, I think possibly Alito and it looks like Barrett. So as such, he may give weight to precedent and decide to uphold Roe, especially given um, 
you know, what a, what a central case it is to understanding the stability of law. On the other hand, the originalists on the court, like Barrett and Gorsuch, uh, I'm sorry, and Thomas, he's the other one, not Alito, um, they don't give weight to precedent. Uh, their reason is they say that the proper method to interpret the Constitution is its original meaning, and they tend to think that if, it's, if there are precedents that have gotten it wrong, you should always return to the original meaning, even if that means ignoring precedent. It's interesting to note, indeed, to back up what you said, that uh, Amy uh, Coney uh, Barrett has made clear that she doesn't regard herself if and when she becomes a Supreme Court justice as being bound by precedent. Uh, and that's very important to note, as I say, as in contradiction to someone like Justice Roberts, who was always a clear, a clear believer in precedent. But I don't think the danger of Roe versus Wade being overturned categorically is very serious. The real uh, likelihood is that uh, the decision will be undermined without ever being literally overturned. Overturned. Be yeah. undermined by by allowing the states to enact various restrictions, uh, ever ever more restrictive uh, provisions, uh, uh, constraining uh, and hedging around the the the, the right to abortion. Uh, I don't think, frankly, that the political right want the decision overturned as such because then they lose a great rallying cry, and the left certainly doesn't want it overturned as such. So. I think that what you're going to have is a battle over what restrictions are permissible and what restrictions are not, and likely, uh, uh, given uh, Justice Barrett's writings, and again, I can't predict for sure what she's going to do, I can only go by her judicial and her, and her uh, academic writings, that she is likely to side with those who favor more and more restriction. Um, Anthony? Uh, yes. I would tend to agree with, with Steve. I don't, I don't think... Uh, when people fear Roe versus Wade being overturned, I really don't see that happening because of the the precedent. But I do see that you know worst case scenario for those that are in the pro crowd is, is that that the the court may uh, be more uh, willing to listen to uh, reasonable restrictions on on abortion, uh, uh, not not uh, totally getting rid of the the process because I, I don't think that's I don't think that will ever happen. Uh, I think I think abortion will always be there, uh, but I think <clears throat> I think if a, m- a more conservative court may may very well rule differently regarding certain restrictions and and uh, requirements and things like that 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 uh, would impact abortion, but not not cause it to go away. Because I don't think that's a procedure that's ever going to go away. There's another variable here, a key variable here too, as we said earlier. One of the reasons that makes it sometimes difficult to predict uh, uh, judges' positions is because there are new issues emerging that create new cleavages that we didn't anticipate. And one of those is happening with abortion right now. The real issue very soon, if it isn't already, is going to be chemical abortion, not surgical abortion. And that presents a whole different range of privacy issues, uh, regulation of medical care issues, and so forth. So that, uh, that may change the context in ways that no one has yet thought through. So I'm going to be three groups of people whose access to abortion will be um, further restricted. Uh, one would be poor women. Another would be um, minors, um, uh, girls under 18. Um, so on both of those cases, I think already the restrictions dramatically uh, limit the ability of poor people to access abortion. But right now there are... Um, requirements that minors do have rights to abortion, but if their parents, if they don't want to get parental consent, they have to see a judge. Uh, I could see that being a type of restriction that would be 
you know, liberal parents would have uh, an absolute veto over minors' uh, right. And then the third group would be um, people who would seek uh, insurance coverage for abortion right. through a faith-based company. company mm -hmm. um, I think the court is likely to be more accommodating of religious accommodations. And correct me if I'm wrong, that's the, probably the easiest one for them to to enact or, you know, uh, look at and successfully take a challenge to. Well, they've, they've already addressed that some in the uh, in the case where they said that uh, faith based organizations don't have to provide coverage for uh, contraception or for abortions. Um, so that 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 road's already been traveled some it's not heavily traveled but they've already made a decision regarding that uh so not so not, 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 not a long venture to get to that point yeah well, so if i can there's never been there's never been a, a constitutional right to health insurance in the employment context uh and again the question of uh that uh, that was never addressed in the Supreme Court, really, as a case involving the right to abortion so much as it was as a case of the religious liberty of employers. Uh, so again, it, it involves a potential uh, conjunction of legal issues that we haven't that we haven't yet you know, dealt with. It comes to the question of what you know, uh, essentially, which would be regarded as the key issue as the defining as the defining issue. But we know that wealthy women have never had trouble getting abortion even long before it was legal. Uh, his, history tells us that. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, it's very likely that no matter what the Supreme Court does, if the matter is largely remitted to the states and some states pass a restrictive abortion laws, the wealthy women in those states will still be able to get abortions, uh, either from uh, uh, private gynecologists or by going out of state or by going out of the country. There's no doubt about that. So it is the poor uh, and the minorities and the young uh, and the people who can't uh, who can't travel 250 miles, who can't take five days off because of waiting period requirements, who uh, can't get parental con consent or husband consent, uh, or, uh, or who can't uh, uh, afford uh, the costs that would go up if hospital affiliations were required, even supposing that hospitals were willing to grant affiliation to those doctors. Uh, it's all the poor women. It's all the same people now who suffer from almost all of our public policies in any area of law uh, suffer from uh, the great deficit in healthcare. If the same people who would suffer, they would only suffer more. Mm -hmm. I'd like to shift um, now to LGBTQ. And um, the court has been very interesting over the last 20 years with LGBTQ issues. What do we know about um, Amy Barrett and, and what is her um, history with LGBTQ issues. Uh, I read something this morning about um, things she's written about that, you know, emphasize the traditional um, family uh, structure and uh, and also traditional marriage uh, as something that she's um, favored. But uh, it, it, it seems she's likely, you know, to the right. But again, I think the the issue is is you know Brett Kavanaugh or the center of the court uh, on these issues, um, so uh, and how much they will honor precedent. 
So for example, I think if Obergefell had not been decided, then the new court would rule against same-sex marriage. Uh, they probably would have even, um, before Justice Ginsburg died, um, because Justice Roberts uh, dissented in that case and he would have voted with the four conservatives. So with, after Justice Kennedy left, um, but again, it's, it's deference to precedent. So my guess is that same-sex marriage would be, um, would, would be upheld um, in, in deference to precedent, but, um, but extending LGBTQ rights beyond that, I think it's going to be more limited with, um, with Justice Ginsburg being replaced by Barrett. And especially in the context of uh, religious accommodations. In fact, there's, a, I think, a case right now, um, I believe it's before the Supreme Court, involving, um, is it a Philadelphia case where the, they, it's an anti-discrimination law that requires um, child placement agencies to you know, not discriminate uh, on the basis of sexual orientation, but Catholic services won't place children with same-sex couples for foster care. Uh, and that's, um, I believe, coming before the court. So that's the kind of thing where uh, giving greater uh, deference to religious accommodations is going to, um, in some ways, un undermine some of the protections for LGBTQ rights. But your opinion at the moment is that it's, you know, we're not looking at stripping of rights that we already have just tweaking on what could be done to further am i am i understanding yeah, yeah. That, that's there's you know there's a, the purpose the reason i wanted to to do this show is because there's a lot of a, a lot of chatter out there and a lot of people that are wildly speculating and you know it's really important for our community to understand you know what we're looking at and what's what's true and what's fodder and you know what's people just going you know off at the mouth, so to speak. So I would now switch to our community itself and, and what we're looking at. Of course, healthcare, you know, would be a primary issue for us. Um, but are we looking at anything restricting the advances that we've had um, in the last 20 years? Other cases out there that, are, that may come up that would put some of our protections in jeopardy? Yes, we yes we are. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily cases that are literally currently uh, winning their way through the courts and before the Supreme Court, but cases that, based on other kinds of cases, are likely to come up. And this raises the important point that uh, as much as we focus on the Constitution, the great bulk of what the Supreme Court does involves interpreting and applying statutes, laws right. of Congress, or figuring out how laws relate to each other, or figuring out whether the state or the federal government has primacy in a particular area. Uh, or figuring out uh, 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 if, a if a treaty overrides a federal statute, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So not necessarily to do with individual constitutional rights at all, or that's what we focus on. So far as our community is concerned, there is a, a, a distinct dislike, uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, on the part of the, uh, the newer members of the judiciary, shall we say, uh, to the ADA. Uh, there is a belief, uh, well, I won't go into all the beliefs that undermine this, all the misconceptions that undermine this. We, many of us know those only too well. But it's increasingly likely that decisions which involve, or cases which involve acute statutory determinations uh, about disability rights in the healthcare system, as well as outside the healthcare system, will go badly. For example, 
the Affordable Care Act included a section 1557. And that's a section which basically, uh, in effect, not in name, but in effect, uh, made anti-discrimination uh, part of the law with respect to uh, a variety of, of things that uh, insurance companies uh, and service providers had to do. Well, not only has that never been effectively enforced, but the current administration is, has just curtailed its applicability. Of course, if the Affordable Care Act is overturned entirely, Section 1557 will go away entirely. Uh, but if not, it will remain, and it currently would remain in its, uh, in its uh, wounded form. Uh, and Congress could, of course, do something about that if it wanted to. And that would depend on the makeup of Congress and on the uh, energy of, of advocacy brought to bear on its behalf. There are also many, many issues. What about uh, uh, civil rights issues in the context of medical treatment? If you go into a healthcare facility today, you as a blind or visually impaired person are elected to be met with, an, with a, ki a kiosk into which you have to fill uh, uh -huh. out your information, your data. But those kiosks are largely inaccessible. I don't uh, think anybody believes that a conservative Supreme Court would rule the Constitution or even potentially as the, AD, as the ADA, if they would interpret it, uh, would require that those be uh, those be made accessible. I could see many arguments, legal arguments, technical arguments, why they would argue otherwise. Uh, what about, for example, the right to uh, uh, accessible test results? What about the, all, all kinds of rights that go along with our experience of healthcare? And we all know that healthcare is particularly trying for us as blind or visually impaired people, not just because we're sick or worried about our health, but because most of the people who provide the healthcare regard visual impairment as a disease in itself. Uh, and as such, there's often much less possibility for the kinds of, of uh, interchange and exchange that are required to make and implement uh, useful treatment decisions. I can't mention the name the number of times that people have been prescribed have been prescribed uh, 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 drugs which they couldn't take, they couldn't, they couldn't get, they couldn't find out the dosage, they couldn't read the bottles. Uh, maybe on a rare occasion they could get accessible labels, maybe they couldn't. These are all the issues that courts are going to have to decide, and they're going to come up under statute. They're not going to be constitutional issues by and large. But right. They're going to come up under statute, and how the courts will interpret those statutes, again, given the past record of, uh, of, recent, of recent Republican nominees, is not, is not overly encouraging. Which leads me to, um, I'm going to move away from actual uh, actual litigation slash uh, statute speak. Um, the appointment of federal judges, how important is it based, not based, how important is it to pay attention to the, to the federal judges that are being appointed and would what's would those appointees change what comes to the Supreme Court from the states? I'll, uh, I'll respond, Anthony. Sure. I think one of the most important things that a president can do, regardless of who it is, is to, is to fill the federal bench. And, and uh, whether that's uh, district court judges, appellate court judges, or the Supreme Court, and... Um, uh, that it, it does it, well. It has an impact because the way the way a district court judge rules on a case, you know, is going to affect whether or not somebody's going to appeal it up and things like that. So, sure, it's it's going to impact you know anybody's case, uh, depending on you know the judges you get. You hope that presidents will appoint judges that are fair and and you know administer their their court in a fair and. Uh, judicial manner and, and and all that stuff and make cases you know make decisions based on 
uh, applying the facts to the law that's presented to them. And uh, some judges are good. Some, I mean, I've been in front of judges that were excellent judges. I've been in front of judges that weren't so excellent. Um, obviously, they're political when they get appointed, but with lifetime appointments, a lot of them tend to uh, a lot of them tend to kind of modify over the years, depending on depending on what they see. Some of them become rather jaded. Others become disinterested or whatever. But um, but no, I think it's one of the most important things that a, a president does. Absolutely. And uh, just as Steve was saying that the bulk of cases deal with statutes uh, or statutes, the, um, you know, the bulk of, of cases are decided by lower courts. The Supreme Court takes a very small fraction of cases that actually occur. So the Supreme Court, you know, can step in periodically to kind of set the parameters for an area of law, but, but most cases are decided at the district and circuit court levels. And one of the most important dimensions to that is how the district and circuit court judges apply the law as it's written as it's written by the Supreme Court. Uh, cases cases are, li are live creatures. I mean, we only have to look at Roe versus Wade to know that it's alive as alive now and as central to our politics as it was maybe more so than it was the day after it was decided 47 years ago. So how uh, any major case, uh, or even cases which seem minor at first gain their ultimate importance from the way that the lower court judges choose to apply and interpret them. They can apply and interpret them expansively or narrowly. So the law really, the real, in the, in the end, the day-to-day -day law, as it affects actual litigants, as opposed to the abstract law, as it affects higher level decision-making is made in the district and, and circuit courts. And by the way, don't forget the state courts as well. Anybody here who is or has aspirations to do advocacy has to remember there is tremendous potential in state law and in state courts. And that may ironically increase if we do have a Supreme Court uh, that uh, believes uh, in what's called originalism. And uh, uh, it might well be that in many areas, power will be ceded back to the states in a way that has not happened uh, since basically prior to 1935. And of course, when you look at that, then you look at how judges are seated in different states. Some states, all the state court judges are appointed uh, and in other states, they, they all sit for election. And right. every judge, uh, the only ones that, that are appointed are occasionally some, some municipalities appoint their municipal court judges, but the rest of them, the justices of the peace, the, the, the county court, county court of law, district judge, uh, appellate courts, and the Supreme Court appeals are all elected positions. So it's, it's, different. it's different in different states. So I'd like to go back to Roe v. Wade for a moment and ask an opinion question. There's been a lot of talk that Roe v. Wade itself was a very flawed case um, and probably shouldn't have come up the way it came up. For our listeners, could one of you please um, speak a little on that and, and why it's, it's you know, so relevant at the moment? I can speak to why it's considered a flawed case. Um, it's, it's flawed because the, although there are a variety of different uh, constitutional methodologies that different justices employ, uh, Roe versus Wade is hard to justify by any of them. So um, with the originalists on the court, you know, the, there's no, it's implausible to think that the original understanding of 
the 14th Amendment uh, intended to protect abortion. Uh, but even with um, so-called living constitutionalists that believe that you can interpret the Constitution uh, in a more evol evolving way to take account of kind of change circumstances. Uh, in 1973, uh, the great majority of states had restrictions on abortion that Roe versus Wade overturned. I, I believe it actually invalidated, in effect, the laws of 46 states. So um, even living constitutionalists uh, don't say they just get to decide what what the law should be. They they tend to instead look to evidence in society that uh, that there have been objective changes. Uh, so we see this with a lot of criminal procedure rights, and uh, we saw this. We've seen this with gay rights and women's rights. That the court, in a sense, responds to changes in society. And uh, so, even though it's not hewing to the original meaning, it is it is basing it on kind of contemporary meaning that's objectively verifiable in society. You can look to what states are doing, uh, like the famous Griswold case um, in 1965 that recognized uh, the right to access contraception for married couples. Uh, virtually every state allowed married couples to use contraception. And even the state in the case, I think it was Connecticut, that didn't allow it, it was, it was never enforced. Um, you could actually go into any drugstore and purchase contraception. So, um, but in, in the case of Roe, by contrast, uh, you couldn't say, well, society has now evolved to the point where it recognizes abortion as a fundamental right, because like I said, the overwhelming majority of states still restricted it. So from a policy perspective, one can be uh, pro-choice, but from a constitutional perspective, uh, it's it's hard to justify it as as a fundamental right. Uh, I'll stop there. Other than to say, an alternative would be perhaps to look at it as an equal protection right of women, but that's not the way the court went. Um, Anthony, one one note here: there were several people when it first came out. Uh, the title of this, they 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 mistakenly thought that that case was a, a means of crossing the creek. That's an interesting point. Well, how are you going to cross the creek? You're going to row, or are you going to wade? Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> All right. So, well, but, but, but again, the question that, that you just posed, Anthony, about the, uh, the flawed or not flawed constitutional basis for the decision, uh, again, highlights the fact that, in a sense, that doesn't matter because we have to deal with what is now. Uh, uh, and what is now is that many, many people perceive the right to abortion, whether you look at it from the standpoint of, of privacy or gender equality or any other basis uh, as, as, as a fundamental civil right. And many other people obviously believe in it as something, uh, see it as currently quite terrible. So the, the current context is what really matters. And whatever was sound or unsound about the original decision is long suffused in the uh, ongoing political debate. Yeah, and what's really interesting too is the the Supreme Court in the 1992 case, uh, Casey, although it still affirmed Roe as a fundamental right rather than a gender equality right, the the reasoning of the case sounded very much in gender equality. It was a, a joint opinion uh, by O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter. It reads very much like a kind of Kennedy-O'Connor uh, opinion, but it, it emphasized the the right of women to determine their their role in life. So it, it really has become a, a understood really as, as a gender equality issue. Uh, and one other thing I would say about that is even if 
it's upheld. Um, I mean, the, part of the reason the abortion issue is so difficult is even if one could persuasively say that it should be recognized as fundamental right or as an aspect of women's equality, uh, and I think the women's equality is, is, a, is a sound basis for it, uh, no rights are absolute. And so there's still the question of how do you value uh, the developing embryo and fetus? Uh, so even if you would say it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a constitutional right, uh, one could still in good faith believe that protecting the right of the fetus is sufficiently compelling that it should override the right even if the right is generally protected. Well, and, and I would respond to that by saying that uh, with the advances in medical science and, and the fact that uh, uh, unborn, unborn babies that, uh, uh, that have been removed from the womb can, can survive at a lot earlier rate than they could in 1972 and 1973. I mean, they can, you know, I think they've had some as young as 20 weeks been able to survive after being removed from the mother's womb. So. That's that I think is a something that, as he said, I think that's going to at some point come into play is that what are the rights of the unborn child? And, uh, and as before, they thought, well, if, you know, if the kid doesn't make, you know, if the, if the unborn child doesn't make it past, you know, 30 weeks or whatever, they aren't, they're not going to survive. But now it, they've had some as I think as early as 20 and 21 weeks and things like that, that have been able to survive outside the womb with prenatal care and things like that. So I think, I think that's an important issue to look at. Absolutely. One of the, uh, the uh, medical arguments against Roe v. Wade is precisely that the, the uh, trimester-based analysis in the case has been superseded, as you're, as you're saying, Chris. That as the original case said, you can't, you can't restriction, restrict abortion in the first trimester. You can, uh, you know, uh, only in really the third trimester can you, can you seriously restrict it. Uh, and what will be considered unconstitutional by way of burdensomeness of restrictions will depend upon when they apply. Now, Chris, you're saying that the test should be some measure of viability. I guess quickening is, is, is that the term or is viability? But anyway, you're suggesting the test should be or is, in fact, the ability of a fetus to survive outside the womb and that the uh, trimester analysis was a, a shorthand for that. And the question then, of course, that uh, supporters of Roe v. Wade would come back with and say, yes, but is that a, a general question which should just be decided by the Supreme Court or the case-by-case decision that should be decided by doctors? Mm. Well, this has been fascinating. And we are definitely going to take some questions in a little while, but I wanted to touch on the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the work that she's done. Um, I want to start Professor, if you don't mind, if you can talk a little bit about the significance of the five cases she brought to this, uh, the six cases, excuse me, the five cases that she won um, and brought to the Supreme Court and how that basically set up, um, you know, a slew of cases in, in its wake for gender and LGBT equality, et cetera, et cetera, and basically set her on a path to become a justice. Professor? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, she's really extraordinary. Um, as, as you all probably know, she graduated, I think, tied for first in her class at Columbia Law School, but couldn't get a job in any firms because she was a woman, she was Jewish, and she was a mother. Uh, she joined the ACLU and uh, ended up heading up the, the Women's Rights Project. 
And until the 1970s, the Supreme Court had, had never invalidated a, a law that discriminated uh, on the basis of sex. And uh, then in one of the cases she brought, uh, Reed versus Reed involved um, a, a mother, a divorced mother who was a single parent and her son committed suicide. Uh, but under the state law, uh, the father was appointed the executor. If there's a, uh, if two people are equally close to a deceased person, then uh, the male gets chosen, even though the father had not been the custodial parent. Uh, and the son, who was an adult, but he, he didn't have much money. It was only like $500 and, and a used car. <clears throat> but she she litigated it, and by the time it got the Supreme Court, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, took the case and um, persuaded the court to apply a, a higher level of scrutiny, a, a standard by which to judge whether it's constitutional. Uh, and so the court ended up striking it down and saying that this was an arbitrary discrimination, and everyone kind of views that case as raising the standard of uh, scrutiny that sex discriminations have to meet. Uh, and uh, also in that case, I, I actually learned recently that um, she listed as co-counsel on the briefs um, two giants from history. I think one was Polly Murray, who I don't even know if she was still alive. She was a black woman who had fought for uh, uh, equal rights for women. And uh, so she was sort of honoring women that had blazed the trail ahead of her. Uh, in another case, uh, a couple of years later, she brought a case uh, th that argued that uh, it was unconstitutional for the military to require uh, women service members to prove their uh, their husbands depended on them, whereas male service members, um, their wives were automatically covered by their benefits. And she persuaded a, a plurality of the court or of the justice to apply the highest level of scrutiny possible under the constitution called strict scrutiny, uh, which is reserved for the most protected rights. Uh, it only got four votes, but it got a couple of concurrences that agreed to strike down the law. Uh, but that case now has been used in other cases to apply a higher level of scrutiny um, to other kinds of, of, of discriminations. Uh, she also was known for bringing cases on behalf of men uh, because she thought that would persuade the justices, you know, that they, they would they were all men at the time to be sympathetic to the, the plaintiff. Uh, one was a case called Weisenfeld that she actually said was one of her favorite clients, who was a man who um, his wife died and uh, he was a single parent then. And um, he wasn't entitled to certain kinds of pension benefits from his wife. Or, or, or may have been social security benefits. I forget the exact details, but um, it was social security. Yeah. Okay. And uh, but wives would widows would get them, but but widowers wouldn't. Uh, and she successfully won that case. And then I'll I'll just mention two more. One was well, one more as a litigator, and then one as a Supreme Court justice. The other as a litigator was a, a I think it was an Oklahoma law that um, allowed women to buy beer at eighteen but required men to be 21. Uh, so in a direct sense, it was discrimination against men. Uh, and she, she successfully persuaded the, the court to apply what's now come to be called intermediate scrutiny, which is 
a level of scrutiny that's uh, very difficult to meet, but not quite as difficult as strict scrutiny, which applies to race. Uh, so the, but the government has to demonstrate an important uh, reason and that the discrimination is substantially uh, related to achieving that reason. And it, it has resulted in striking down virtually any law that discriminates against uh, women. Uh, and then uh, in a kind of, I don't know, justice of history, she, after she was on the Supreme Court, she wrote the opinion in 1996 invalidating the Virginia Military Institute's all-male policy. Uh -huh. And there she got to, you know, as a justice, write into law. She still called it intermediate scrutiny, but uh, many observers think that the scrutiny was something closer to strict scrutiny. That was Justice Scalia's complaint uh, in his dissent. Um, so, uh, so in a sense, her life's work, she first did from as a litigator and then kind of got to complete it on the bench. In her later years, she became very vocal, which is something that we didn't really see before. And um, she gave a real look into the decision-making process and, and how, uh, you know, how cases are talked about amongst the, amongst the, uh, the uh, justices, excuse me. I think, um, I think she most definitely elevated our our knowledge of how things happen amongst the justices in a way that we had never seen before um what a marvel of a woman i just you know we just definitely wanted uh steve chris if you'd like to to say a few things um based i, I would i would i'd like to say that uh, i can think of no superlatives they would do they would do justice to what Ruth Bader Ginsburg achieved and contributed to this country as a litigator and as a Supreme Court uh, justice. Uh, the two people in the 20th century who uh, had tremendous impact as litigators and then also tremendous impact as justices were Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Thurgood Marshall, and uh, they were in a class by themselves in that regard. But she was committed not merely to women's equality but to gender equality. And not only for gender equality, but to all equality and all fairness. And that brings up the question, uh, I want to just maybe uh, give one second of background on this strict scrutiny versus intermediate scrutiny versus no scrutiny issue. There may be some people on the, on the call who don't know what that refers to. Uh, the 14th Amendment has an equal protection and due process clause. And those have been interpreted to, requ uh, to require that in the case of distinctions that government makes between groups of people, the question becomes what standard of review should be applied to those distinctions to determine if they're constitutional or not. Should uh, a strict standard be required whereby the government has to have a very, very good reason for the distinction or maybe can't even have any reason at all because on its face it's invidious or an intermediate standard, in which case the government may be permitted to show some very good reasons why the distinction should be allowed or no standard. And as people with disabilities, we need to know that the Constitution yeah. has never been applied to people with disabilities in this connection. The Supreme Court has had occasion to rule and did in fact rule that making the matter a, a question of constitutional scrutiny rather than just a question of what's called reasonable basis, that doing that would discourage charitable people from helping people with disabilities because they'd be afraid of being sued. So let's not forget that we have no, at this point still, no constitutional scrutiny at all. We have only, if the state can provide a rational basis for it, it's gonna be all right. 
and that's something that's got to change. Uh, and, and again, I don't, I don't know how to change it. It, it could actually, uh, well, I don't know how to change it. It's a terrible thing. And my comments with regard to uh, Justice Ginsburg, um, I watched the movie this this weekend on the basis of sex about her, about her uh, young life and what she went through and and the things that she had to deal with. It 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 reminded me some of when I went to law school and I was the first blind student that was admitted to the Texas Tech Law School and and encountered some ignorance and stupidity just like she did, but. Um, I think she's a woman to be admired. She, she obviously was quite brilliant and quite, uh, successful and, and, um, and she, she made a, an indelible mark in, in U.S. history. And, and I think she's uh, a woman that served her country well and, and, uh, and, and did, did a good job. And one of the, one of the most interesting things that I've heard over the last few weeks about her was the, the closeness that she had with, uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, that they they were actually, you know, even, even though their opinions on legal cases were, you know, mostly, you know, exact opposites, they were very good friends and had, you know, very good relationships outside of the court setting. And um, I think there's something to be said for that because you have nine people that sit on that court that really are limited in who they can associate with in order to... Uh-huh. They maintain a, a impartiality. A impartiality, and they they're not showing that they're being controlled by someone, and and so yeah. it's interesting that that her and Scalia and Thomas were such good friends and had such a wonderful relationship with each other, uh, even though they, you know, vehemently disagreed on many issues. Yeah, I was particularly uh, struck by that, and and I also had never known. She stayed very close to uh, the case that um, Professor was talking about. It was at Weinstock. Um, yeah, and even performed the marriage uh, of the child later on. I, I, I found that to be just, you know, hum- from a humanistic level, beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Byron. She performed the same sex yeah. marriage. Yep. Yeah, and if I could kind of say some more general things about what it means to lose her and and replace her with someone uh i would love that if if you just give me one moment i want to just byron um after after professor mesrui speak ford mesrui excuse me after he speaks we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to open it up to the calling questions professor okay thank you yeah just i'm going to speak with with general strokes, which are necessarily uh, imperfect, but um, but the shift to the right and and you know when I think of the kind of position she took across so many issues is uh, the court will has already been doing this, but is increasingly going to side with corporations uh, over government, side with corporations over plaintiffs, um, side with government as well if it's against individuals. I mean, you can when I teach employment discrimination. You see the very specific text. Nonetheless, you see justices find ways of interpreting them extremely difficult or extremely differently. And uh, you could always count on um, Justice Ginsburg and the other liberal justices to uh, to interpret it to the extent the text can accommodate it in favor of um, the, the aggrieved plaintiffs who have been discriminated against, whether on the basis of disability or race or 
or, or sex uh, or religion or national origin. Uh, and the conservatives tend to uh, interpret it again in good faith, but coming from a perspective that, you know, regulation is, is something that should be read narrowly and, and tend to rule much more often in, in favor of corporations and employers. Uh, so it, it's really kind of, in a sense, the little guy who is, has lost a champion on the court. Catch the ACB Advocacy Update show on ACB Radio Mainstream, all times listed in Eastern and Pacific, Monday, 8 p.m., Tuesday, 8 a.m., Wednesday, 2 a.m. and p.m., Thursday, 8 p.m., Friday, 8 a.m., Saturday, 2 a.m. and p.m. ACB Advocacy Update brought to us by the American Council of the Blind. And that was a quick message about Advocacy Update, which is hosted by Claire Stanley and Clark Clark Rockfeld. Most recently, though, there was a great show hosted by Claire and Tony Stevens. If you haven't heard it, check out ACB Podcasts. You can also find Sunday Edition now in podcast form in all your favorite podcast catchers. Just type in ACB Sunday Edition. Byron, I think the first question is going to come from someone that the professor knows very well. Unmute yourself and ask your question. Uh, thank you, Anthony. Uh, this is Scott Marshall. Uh, <laughs> I want to compliment all of you gentlemen on a very cogent, fascinating discussion about incredibly difficult and complex issues. And uh, thank you for the constitutional law class I should have had in law school. Um, I wanted to make just two quick comments. One, um, and uh, I think it's accurate to say that President Trump has had great success with Senator McConnell and uh, the Senate in filling uh, judicial vacancies and um, have, have moved the lower courts in the federal bench a little to the right, uh, uh, more so than the past. And this has been a process that's been happening uh, that conservatives have wanted to see happen uh, since the 1980s. And I think that since uh, Republicans have been a bit frustrated about uh, not achieving their policy goals in Congress. They're looking more and more to the courts to do this. And I'm wondering if, if any of you would like to comment about uh, whether my perception is correct uh, on that. And secondly, um, I'd like to, to hear what you think the end game here, if there is one, should be for, and I, I have to believe there has to be one, for um, members, for friends and members out there, whether they're Republicans or they're Democrats, in terms of what needs to happen in the next 37 days so that we can avoid having an election that uh, is going to be complex, uh, possibly uh, um, um, in the courts, and, and also we're still decided by Congress. If you have any thoughts on that, I'd be happy to hear them. Thank you. Professor, you want to go first? 
On the latter uh, question, uh, I really wish that uh, the administration and all institutions of our state, local, and federal governments would be coordinating in investing in ensuring as much as possible that we can have safe and accessible elections. Uh, we should have been passing laws to you know, fund the post office, fund uh, more machines, uh, expand number of voting days. I mean, this should be a nonpartisan issue that, um, that voting uh, and having an election that people have confidence in is good for, is necessary for our democracy. So what, what we can do about it, I guess, is, is you know, contact our, our elected leaders and, and ask them to do whatever they can to, to make sure that the, the election is done safely. Because if, if, if enough, if, if the margins are sufficiently one-sided in either direction, I think that will help to uh, minimize uh, conflict. I mean, one of the, the benefits of the Electoral College, I mean, there's, there's downsides, but one of the, the benefits is, um, instead of using a popular vote, is uh, it's only worth litigating if it would make a difference in the outcome of a particular state. Uh, whereas if you had a popular vote, then um, any state, even if you know, even if California won overwhelmingly for Biden, it still may be worth litigating in every single county to get a few more votes because they just go to the go to a total. Whereas this will likely come down to just litigation in in the in the in the battleground states where it's where it's close. Um, on the first question, um, I was still coming back from break, so I may have missed it. But if if the if my sense is the I mean, both parties have always looked to the courts. I think the Republicans have been more effective at prioritizing and mobilizing and motivating their base for uh, for judicial appointments. So I don't see them as looking to the courts any more than they would even if they had more success in the legislative realm. Chris, I'd, I'd, I'd like to... I'd like to hear Chris's thoughts, um, and I'd also like to add to to Scott, Scott's questions. I think like him or don't like him, he has been very successful in the judicial area. You know, one of the things that was said earlier is that the Republicans have wanted to achieve what he has achieved for 30 years. So, you know, like him or, or not, he has been successful in that area of his of the agenda. Chris, do you have any thoughts? I do. Um, and as far as the, the filling of the federal bench is concerned, uh, this goes back to when Harry Reid was still in charge of the Senate. They, they, changed, they changed the parameters for voting for federal judges because Obama was having a hard time getting judges confirmed. So he changed the rules as to uh, regular federal judges to where it was just a simple majority. And then... Uh, once McConnell was uh, majority, he changed it for the Supreme Court. So that that's when that started. The other thing is that that it was so widely assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016 that Obama left like 150 federal vacancies in federal uh -huh. ships, and that's why Trump has had so many to appoint is because 
there was an, a widespread assumption that she was going to win and she would she'd fill those with the people she wanted and when that didn't happen then that left all those vacancies for trump to fill and that's why he's you know claimed that he's going to fill somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 federal judgeships so that's that's kind of the history of that now uh, thank you for pointing that out yeah and as more for, than as for the as for the other with regard to the election um I know in Texas, we we have, in addition to absentee voting, which is you have to claim a reason for that, we have where you can vote at any polling place. Uh, it has been two weeks prior to the election. Now, I think the governor has expanded it to three. Uh, for some unknown reason, the Republican Party of Texas has challenged him on that in court, saying that he couldn't expand that without legislative approval. But um, the plan is that, if, depending on what happens with that case, uh, people can start voting in, in Texas uh, for uh, all the elected offices as early as October the 13th in person. If they want to vote absentee, then they can um, they can request a ballot. I, I think there's concern with the uh, with the sending sending a ballot to every every voter on the rolls because a lot of states have rolls that have not been cleaned in a long time. There are some states that have been doing it, but they've got cleaner rolls because they've been doing it for five or six years. But to suddenly say, well, every every state should have you know send out mail out ballots for everyone. That that just sets up uh, sets up problems. Uh, I know that there was a uh, there was a, a county official in um, Greg County, Texas, which is Longview. It's east of Dallas. Just got just got indicted for uh, for ballot uh, ballot stuffing or whatever. They are ballot harvesting, I think is what they called it, where he and some people, he was trying to make sure that he, he got enough votes to get uh, reelected. And they were harvesting ballots from, I think, from young people and from nursing homes. And uh, they, he got caught and several people got indicted along with him. We don't need that kind of stuff going on. I think we need to make sure that, you know, obviously one person, one vote. But we need to make sure that the person that's casting that vote is knowingly casting their vote. And we need to make sure that the... Uh, the uh, the voting apparatuses are accessible. We just changed uh, machines here in Texas a couple of years ago. Well, in our county, because each county is a little bit different, but we've got 254 of them. But Travis County just changed their their machines, and they're very much accessible because I I can't see the I can't see the screen, and it's uh, so those things we need to make sure that balloting you know voting is accessible and available. But I think expanding, not requiring everybody to vote on election day, I think that's kind of ridiculous. Um, I think Texas had it right by having early voting. We've had early voting for, oh gosh, 20 or 30 years. And it's it's a good process because you can vote anytime. You can, you know, if you're yeah. at the grocery store, there's there's polling deal set up. You can go over there while you're buying before you or after you buy groceries or whatever and go in and, and cast your ballot and get back to buying groceries. So, you know, it's a lot yeah it's a lot more reasonable for people to be able to do that. Anthony, may I add something? Anthony, may I add something? Thanks. Two two, two things. Uh, With respect, just to the quick uh, coda on 2016, although Chris's facts, as usual, are correct, there's an additional fact which should be added, which is that in all likelihood, almost to a certainty, if Obama had attempted to fill those seats, they would have been blocked in the same way that Merrick Garland was. But I want to go back to Scott's, I want to go back to Scott's question, his two-part question. Uh, and I think he's he's getting at what many people see as a paradox, which is the Republicans who who have decried 
who've decried uh, the growth of uh, court power as an unelected, undemocratic form of government, nevertheless, quite, quite consciously, quite frankly, quite proudly, are in fact trying to use the court to bring about their own objectives. I don't, I don't object to that. I say some people find it, find it uh, paradoxical, at least in terms of their general attitude toward uh, judicial activism. Uh, on Scott's other question, which is very important, I think what he's reflecting is that as the election approaches, as the fears of all kinds of chaos and known and unknown uh, loom, we all find ourselves in the position of being passengers uh, in the backseat of a car with no control over how to drive it or where it's yep. going. It's going faster and faster. It's going more and more radically. And the question Scott is asking, I think, is what, if anything, can each of us as individuals, as citizens, as caring, uh, sentient beings, irrespective of our politics, do to keep this country politically and socially from coming apart? And that's, that's by no means a trivial question. That is the key question. I don't have an answer. The only answer I have is to try to be as accurate uh, and uh, non-polarizing and non-polemical in all discussions as I have and to ask other people to do the same. I can't make them do the same any more than a person with a philosophy book and control the activities of a, uh, you know, someone who wants to have a fist fight. Uh, but I think that uh, actually, in the end, a lot does determine, depend upon the Republican Party. Think back to Watergate. Think of how it was Republican uh, leading senators who convinced President Nixon to resign. I think a lot here, since we really know that uh, the question comes down to what the current administration is willing to do to stay in power. That's really the question. Uh, 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 the question really comes down to what the Republican Party is going to allow or countenance that administration to do. Well, the public Republican Party has definitely shifted the narrative. So I will pose this question. Historically speaking, voter fraud is very minimal. Correct me if I'm wrong. The evidence supports that completely. It's well... It depends on what your definition of minimal is. I mean, there have been a lot of elections that have, I mean, you can go back to the, the election of uh, uh, Coleman and um, uh, in, in Minnesota, where all these ballots suddenly showed up after the election and changed the results and the court uh, refused to have any, have any, uh, uh, they didn't, they didn't uh, have any, they didn't even question the ballots. They're like, well, they're ballots. And, and didn't question where they came from or how they suddenly appeared. I think it's more, it, when you say minimal, it's, it, it depends on if, if you're involved or not. I mean, I've, I've, run, I've been elected before and I've been not elected before in countywide office. And, and I think every ballot, you know, every vote is important. And when people are cheating and at, at voting, if they're, I mean, just this week, there were two stories in the news. They found uh, absentee ballots in Pennsylvania in the trash. There were, I think there were only nine of them, but they were ballots that had been sent in to be counted, and they were in the trash. And then there was another uh, bundle of ballots. That, that wasn't a case of fraud. That was a case of accident. Well, we don't know. They were found in the trash. Um, then there was another bunch that were found in, in Wisconsin. I mean, uh, there were, you know, th there's there's issues there. And, and there's that election in New York that took months and months to to decide because of mail-in ballots and question of, you know, who knows? I mean, this, I think it's, I think it's more prevalent than, than people, people are trying to say. I'm not saying that it occurs in every election, but I think there's a lot more of it than, than we know. But, but Anthony is adding, asking, I think, a broader question. 
And Anthony's question, if I understand it correctly, is really this. Given the evidence of actual instances of, of voter fraud that we have discovered over the years, mm-hmm. uh, uh, is, is the effect upon discouraging legitimate voters from voting that an over-attention or an over-preoccupation with this issue will have? Is that is that worth the risk? And how much of that preoccupation is genuine and how much of it is political? Those are both fair questions. Yeah, that is, that is exactly where... Um, I'm he- where I was heading. And I think at this point, the narrative that's being you know presented out there is not that people's votes won't be counted. It's that too many votes will be counted and not be counted in a in a um, in a way that it, you know is correct. And, and I think that that's me personally, I'm gonna take my absentee ballot and hand it in. I'm not putting it in the mail. That's, That's exactly what I'm going to do, Anthony. I, I'm I'm right there with you. Um, also, yeah. we have a question. Lynn has their hand raised, so um, I sure. figured I would break it and let you know. Hey, Lynn. Welcome to Sunday Edition. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm taking a class right now in my PhD program called Essential Issues and Cases in the Courts, so I'm learning all about this stuff that you're talking about. One of the issues that... You haven't really discussed, but you kind of talked about around it in terms of narrow decisions by the Supreme Court, especially in disability cases, is that a lot of these cases right now are, and for a long time, since we've had the Rehnquist Court and the Roberts Court and the Burger Court even, are really being determined on states' rights instead of uh, coming in with with constitutional issues or federal uh, issues. What do you think about that, and do you think the preponderance of a state's rights, uh, upholding the state's rights in terms of congressional rights, uh, the Commerce Clause, and um, the uh, Marbury versus Ma- uh, Madison in terms of judicial review. What do you think about that? Thank you. Well, I'll, well okay. Lenny, uh, I don't see you if it's good or bad, or if it's likely to continue. What what exactly are you asking us? Uh, yeah, I'm asking. Bad, like- I'm saying is is that I think it is bad that we're deferring to states instead of really making um, national law, federal law, and not expanding a lot of um, legal issues, especially when it comes to disability rights, which I'm reading in articles have been very narrowly decided. Um, so my question is, do you think that's going to continue in terms of? Uh, states' rights in in in, yes. in terms of that. That's what I'm asking. Well, it depends, uh, Lynn. I think it depends on what the what the original facts are of the case. Because if a case is brought uh, basically against, uh, if if it's brought in violation of a state law, they're not going to make a federal. You know, they're not going to. You know, even though they they may bring in the the ADA or other national or federal laws, they're not going to make it applicable, uh, most likely not going to make it applicable across the board if someone's contesting a state a state uh, law, because every state's laws are a little bit different. Professor, could it be said that, you know, it's sort of the same situation as we were faced with gay marriage? And, you know, it was basically a mess for years until a, and a, if, you know, a definitive decision came down. Um, aren't we sort of looking at the same situation? Well, I, I guess it, de- it, de- it depends on the, on the issue. Uh, 
I, I think it is true that this court is likely to read federal regulations uh, more narrowly. Um, let me step back a bit and speak historically. There, there's been two periods in the 20th century that have involved uh, significant shifts in power towards the federal government. Uh, one was during the New Deal, uh, great expansion of federal legislation um, in response to the, the Depression, and the other is in the 1960s with civil rights laws civil rights. And, and, Medicare uh -huh. and, and the like. Um, and uh, both were in response to crises of a sort, the Great Depression and, and the civil rights movement. Uh, and the conservative court is in, you know, is over the decades and it's only going to continue in that direction, are kind of cutting back on both of those. So uh, it's going to read regulations more narrowly, whether they're protective of disability rights or the environment uh, or labor. Um, cutting back on the New Deal. So and also uh, the civil rights era regulations and the ADA is really a kind of continuation of that uh, anti-discrimination regulations of the workplace and public accommodations, as well as something we haven't really talked about. Uh, criminal defendants rights uh, are also something that the Warren Court expanded. Uh, and I think the court's going to not in sort of obvious ways, but often in interpretive ways, minimize those expansions. Uh, so defendants' rights will be more circumscribed and anti-discrimination laws. And that does then leave it to, to the states. So yeah, so you will have states that are stronger on civil rights and, um, and states that are weaker on civil rights. And so there will be a kind of patchwork uh, by virtue of a more limited reading of, of the federal laws. One area where I think we'll see an expansion of a type of individual right is the Second Amendment. Uh, so that's an area that for some people, you know, we'll see, I think, greater judicial uh, intervention. I mean, judicial activism is really just what people say about decisions they don't agree with uh, when the court will increasingly invalidate regulations of guns they won't call it activist. Uh, they'll say they're, you know, interpreting the Constitution. And people who are skeptical of Second Amendment rights will say the court's being activist. Seeing it, Chris. It's. Uh, I think that we have to, and uh, Lynn, not to overcomplicate your question because it's an extremely important one. There are four power centers that we have to look at in the analysis of this question. Number one is the states. Number two is Congress. Number three is the courts. And number four is the regulatory apparatus of the federal government in implementing uh, and interpreting laws. Now, there have been two struggles going on. The one that gets the most attention, as you say, is the battle between the states and the federal government for authority uh, embodied in the, in the phrase states' rights. But there's another as important battle going on, which is much less understood and much less discussed, which is the battle between Congress and the courts for supremacy uh, in the making of federal law. And the Supreme Court has actually basically done some striking things that people don't know about. Not only have they limited Congress's power to uh, apply the Interstate Commerce Clause, they've also limited Congress's power to apply the 14th Amendment uh, in some very striking ways, which will come up if you ever get a Congress which is seeking to restore, restore or expand civil rights. So federal regulations can be used in a number of ways. They can be used to empower states to do what they want. 
They could also be used, and this can also be done through the budgeting process, uh, as we've seen already in the past administration, uh-huh. uh, to uh, to punish states for doing things that the federal government does not does not like. So uh, it's it's it becomes partly a matter of states' rights, but partly a matter of basically who's ox is gourd, who you like and who you don't like. You take into effect into account the separation of powers doctrine, where you've got where you've got the judiciary and you've got the executive branch and you've got you've got Congress and and you know one of the things that the current president has attempted to do over the four almost four years that he's been in office is to is to cut back on some federal regulations and um, and there are some in Congress that don't like that and they're you know, and so some of that stuff has gotten to the judiciary, but no, no one, you know, when it comes down to it, all three of the, the power centers in, in Washington have power, but, but they're, they're separate. And, and, you know, one, one wants to have the other's power and the other wants to have their power. And, and I think Steve is right. It all depends on who you want to root for. And, and it probably also depends on what the issue is, because there may be some issues you want less regulation and, and less burden to, uh, the citizenry and there's other areas you want more regulation all depending on you know where you particularly stand on that particular issue Byron, do we have any hands i do not see any hands at the moment in that case can i come go ahead absolutely yeah i think a, a supreme court case that perfectly illustrates what steve said about cutting back on commerce and and 14th amendment powers is called the united states versus morrison and in that case, uh, the Supreme Court in a five to four decision invalidated uh, a provision of the Violence Against Women Act that created a private cause of action by a victim of, of sex motivated violence. Uh, and the particular case was a female college student who sued uh, another student who was a football player for sexually assaulting her. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, Congress, tried to claim that it was justified under both the Commerce Clause and the 14th Amendment. The Commerce Clause because uh, violence against women has significant um, economic effects, which there was a lot of testimony before Congress documenting that. Um, and then also because the 14th Amendment, which protects um, e- equality, has an enforcement provision, Section 5. And so they said that this is a way of enforcing um, women's equality, and the Supreme Court rejected both those arguments and said that uh, uh, the Commerce Clause doesn't reach uh, private activity that isn't directly a part of economic activity, even if it has uh, effects on economic activity. And then under the 14th Amendment, they said uh, that only applies to state-based discrimination, and even Congress's enforcement power can't use it to get at private discrimination. But even though the court just made that decision, it didn't preclude the the victim of the sexual violence from being able to bring a, a case in in state court. They just couldn't bring it in federal court. That's true. The reason for the the act was because uh, there was evidence that um, states tended to under enforce laws against sexual assault. Um, but but absolutely, in, in the states. Have the authority to to fill in those gaps. It's just they they have a, a bad record when it comes to violence against women. And let's also remember, you could only bring an action in the state court if that particular state had a law uh, creating and allowing such a such a cause of action. 
Some states do and some states don't. And also you have another problem, which is diversity jurisdiction. If you're trying to sue a, multi, um, um, a multi-state, if not multinational corporation, uh, it's very difficult in many cases to get jurisdiction vested in the state court. Uh, there are various conditions in which they can have it removed the federal court, and then the issue becomes much more complicated, and you end up with a situation, as is all too often throughout the law, again, regardless of what side you're on, that the person with the deepest pockets wins. Yeah, but in this case, it was a private individual versus a private individual, so uh, that wouldn't that wouldn't come into play. Well, but again, with that that particular that particular case is one thing. But we're talking about how these cases are likely to typically come up in the future. We have a, a written question from Jamal. Um, if you could unmute yourself and ask the question, that would be much appreciated. And we do have a hand up from Lynn as well. All right, we'll take Lynn and um, I will try to get the written question. Do you want me to read it when she's finished with her question? Yes, please. Yeah, I, I studied that case, by the way, um, Kim. And mm. I, I did study that case and I know about it. And I don't agree that it's a private issue because it affects so many women, violence against women. And that's why I didn't agree with the decision of the court. The other thing I wanted to say that I forgot to say is that we have gone through bad times before. In 1895, when the Pollock decision was decided in terms of state income tax and the court, the Fuller Court decided that the, the um, income tax was communistic and socialistic. And this was 1895, folks. We have gone through this kind of stuff before. And I think that we have to remember that the long arc of history is, uh, is a raid towards justice. That's a good point. Thank you, Lynn. Okay. Another thing we haven't talked about. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Jamal had a question. Did we want to Sure. Um, okay. So uh, Jamal wrote, uh, since Republicans have repeatedly acted under the justification of might makes right in recent years, if Democrats win control of Senate, would it be possible for them to act similarly by quickly removing the newly added Supreme Court justice via the impeachment process? Ooh, interesting question. Well, that depends on whether you believe impeachment is a legal or a political process. If you believe it's a legal process, then they could do it in the same way that uh, an incumbent president could nominate a Supreme Court justice the day before and get them confirmed. The question is, is it a politically liable process? Unfortunately for the country, and again, it doesn't matter who, which side it is, in my view, it's probably not. And I would be against that, even though I think it's it was wrong. That's a bad precedent. I... Terrible yeah, precedent. Because, because impeachment is for... Bad Wrongdoing, yeah. Uh, and, um, but uh, but now, yeah, unfortunately, the speaking of political politics, another thing I we didn't really talk on is is um, that much is is voting rights, and uh, there are areas of law that Justice Ginsburg dissented, and uh, the court will only go further in that direction. You know, the, the majority invalidated a critical provision of the Voting Rights Act. Um, it's upheld, you know, um, it's invalidated restrictions on um, campaign financing. Uh, I think, a, uh, let's see, what's another, oh, political gerrymandering. Um, so there's, there's a lot of problems with our political system and um, a conservative court, I think, is, is more likely to um, either stay out of it or, in the case of money, um, allow it to continue to 
be a major part of our politics. I think as far as gerrymandering is concerned, that's that's as old as politics because I mean the winning the winning side is going to draw the boundaries to make it most fair to them so they can keep themselves in office, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. That goes that goes way back. Every every state has done it. I don't, you know, they and it's normally drawn to where if if Jim is in office and Jim wants to stay in office, he's gonna make sure that the boundaries are drawn so he gets to stay there. But if he has enough enemies in in the state house, they're going to draw it to figure out a way to get somebody else in there and get him out. So it's you know that's yeah that's yeah. But historically speaking, I want to I want to sense that it definitely <laughs> historically speaking it definitely um, is a process that makes it more difficult for low low income you know for portions of the of our society that are it's hard for them to to vote in the first place it definitely makes it harder um you know every side is going to play their power when they have it but you know i think it's definitely been shown that it's it's to raise the the restriction to raise the the difficulty for voting for you know economically oppressed people disabled I would like people to just, go ahead Steve. i'd like to just i'd like to descend from from uh judge prentice's opinion on the gerrymandering issue uh the, <laughs> issue, the issue with gerrymandering of course is whether one person's vote counts for, for more than others and there are first of all some limits on gerrymandering for example in, in the racial area uh, uh you can't you can't gerrymander to in effect to put all, all the minority voters in 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 one district and then say well but the district has the same number of voters so it's all right. You have you can't create a system which effectively denies people uh, the meaningful ballot on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, I suppose, gender. If there were a concentration of where men versus women lived, things like that. Second of all, it isn't at least in recent years accurate to say that both parties have been equally guilty of extreme gerrymandering. And I point to several examples of that. Number one, a number of, sta- of states, including California, which is a democratic state, have instituted. Uh, 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 commission-based, citizen-based uh, district drawing, which takes it largely, not completely, but largely out of politics. A number of states have adopted or tried to adopt uh, nonpartisan di- districting. Again, that has been largely a democratic initiative. Now, you might say, well, they just want to say that because they're losing. That may or may not be, but the point is that has been a democratic initiative by and large around the country. So, of course, everybody does it, but it really comes down to being a matter of degree. We have about one minute left, but uh, we have Tim with a question. So I don't know if we have time for that, but uh, Tim does have a question. Tim, quickly. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Awesome. Awesome. Great show, Anthony. Um, Quick question. Um, Have we gotten to the point really where we really should, because the court has become so politicized, that we really should go back to lobbying Congress, knowing that probably we are going to have a very conservative court in the future and that we really should, that that should be our response as citizens and not relying on the courts. All of us have an obligation, I would say, a, a, a duty to ourselves and to our posterity to do everything we can as citizens, uh, whether that's lobbying of Congress, joining organizations, whatever it may be. And we all have to exercise the rights of citizenship, which go far beyond voting. Voting is only the, the beginning. We all have to be citizens. Whatever we believe in, whatever outcome we want, we can't afford to sit on the sidelines in any way. 
It's very important to vote in just about six weeks. I'd like to thank my guests today. I'd like to thank everyone who's listening. And I will be back again next week with another Sunday edition. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Anthony. You've been listening to Sunday Edition with Anthony on ACB Radio Mainstream. For more information, questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, etc., please email celebration AC. That's the word celebration with the letters AC at AOL.com. Look forward to hearing from you and let's brunch again next Sunday. 